Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. My name is John Trapagan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm also a professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I welcome Dr. Daniel Dudney to talk about his new book, Dark Skies, Space Expansionism, Planetary Geopolitics, and the Ends of Humanity published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Professor Dudney, thank you for joining me on the SDS channel. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you about this fascinating book. Thank you for having me. So I'll begin with a little background about Dr. Dudney. He is a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University and specializes in international relations and political theory with a focus on contemporary global issues such as nuclear weapons, outer space, the environment, and energy. Dr. Dudney received his PhD in political science from Princeton University and an MPA in science, technology, and public policy from George Washington University. He is also the author of Bounding Power, Republican Security Theory from the Polis to the Global Village, published by Princeton University Press as well as many, many um, book chapters and journal articles. The book we will discuss today is an intriguing take on the recent uptick in space-related news and activities. From SpaceX's successful launch of humans into low Earth orbit, to President Trump's space force aimed at achieving space dominance, to business interests in asteroid mining and colonization of Mars, we appear to be living on the edge of the space age promised in the 1960s that was certainly rather slow in arriving. Amidst an at times almost giddy public discourse about the ways in which space expansion will solve many of our earthly problems, such as environmental degradation, energy production, and even war, Professor Dudney's book is an attempt to put on the brakes and ask if the assumed desirable effects of space expansion are likely to actually come to pass. The argument of dark skies is that, in fact, they will not, at least not in the foreseeable future. On the contrary, it is more likely that expansion into space will cause catastrophic geopolitical and environmental effects, that rather than ensuring humanity's future, are more likely to make that future both short and bleak. For someone like me, who grew up in the 1960s watching Star Trek and following the Apollo moon landings, I found the book at once depressing and refreshing. I actually learned of Dark Skies from a strong supporter of space expansionism, an engineer with years of service in NASA, who sent around an email indicating that he had read the book, thought the argument was quite well developed, and then suggested that all of those in favor of space expansion need to get to work to counter the argument. Clearly, you have caught some people's attention. And so we'll talk in some detail about this as we go through the interview. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking what led you to develop this project and how you came to be interested in the idea of space expansionism 
and the potential threat that it may represent for humanity. Well, like you, um, I'm a product of the uh, heyday of the uh, so-called first space age, uh, 1960s and 70s. Um, I was uh, a, a, a space enthusiast uh, when I was younger, um, science fiction uh, reader. Uh, my father had actually been in the Air Force. He worked for an aerospace company with a contract. Um, and uh, I was very much uh, in favor of the entire um, enterprise. And uh, so uh, this is a book that in some ways I you know, regretted uh, coming to uh, feel the need to write uh, because uh, I am sort of like a recovering you know, spaceaholic uh, in that way. Um, then in the uh, late 70s and uh, early 1980s, uh, I was heavily involved in space uh, as a senior researcher at the World Watch Institute. Uh, I was a graduate student at uh, GW, and I took courses in space policy and uh, wrote a thesis, uh, a master's thesis under uh, Dr. John Logston, uh, who at the time and really since then has been one of the, the leading American uh, thinkers uh, and writers about space. Uh, and during this period, um, late 70s, early 80s, this is the uh, so-called second Cold War, the arms race ginning up. I was very focused on um, space weaponry uh, in the conventional sense of anti-satellite weapons. And so I wrote papers and I uh, went around and gave talks and testified and organized meetings and helped uh, establish an NGO to work on these things. Uh, but then I pretty much stopped um, and uh, did other things uh, and had been always meaning to come back to this, always been following it uh, on the side. Uh, and you know, one of the things about a topic like this is that um, while um, it all seems very fascinating. Uh, it isn't really moving along that rapidly. Um, and space for me is a case study uh, of a more general uh, problem, of a more general pattern of uh, humans interacting uh, with high technologies uh, and new domains um, opened up by those technologies, nuclear weapons, uh, environment, um, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, by the entire, you know, planetary uh, problematique. H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Carl Sagan, uh, wither humanity uh, in the face of uh, these new possibilities. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You you know the one of the things that I I find. I think people of our generation who grew up in the 60s, this sort of what I've referred to at times as the Star Trek imaginary that I think really shaped the way that we tended to see um, the world and tended to see the the opportunities ahead of us um, in space exploration, not necessarily space expansionism. They're, they're very different. Um, but I think one of the things that you point out very powerfully in the book is, is the sort of naivete that has shaped a lot of the ways that we have looked at that. And I think early in the book, you make a, a really interesting observation that despite the fact that our planet seems like a space of abundant life and resources, and, and I think this is actually where some of this naivete, you know, crops up, 
we actually live in what you describe as kind of an oasis in the middle of a vast wasteland that is really inhospitable to human and other forms of life as we understand it. And so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea and why it's important as a frame for thinking about space expansion. Uh, well, there are really two questions here. Uh, one is about the imaginary uh, and the naivete, uh, and the other is uh, about Oasis Earth. So let me first uh, speak to the question of the imaginary. And uh, that's a great phrase, the Star Trek imaginary. Um, and I think that uh, it captures very well uh, a key uh, feature of space, uh, which is that uh, it has been uh, in science fiction uh, subject to this immensely captivating uh, imaginary. Uh, and in many ways, uh, science fiction uh, is the um, organic uh, literature of scientific technological modernity. Uh, and um, people, you know, ever since the 18th century and increasingly ever since, you know, have been uh, exposed to various alternative futures in which uh, transformations, uh, large and small, uh, because of different uh, uh, science-based technologies in different places uh, made available to them. Uh, and so there's a sense in which um, we have a, now a global uh, space culture. People talk about this astro culture, and um, it is all uh, a product, or let's say 90% a product, of a kind of literary, uh, scientific, technological uh, imagination. Uh, and uh, while there are a lot of dystopian uh, uh, scenarios in these uh, literatures, um, the overwhelming sort of legacy or implication of this literature and of, of this widely held imaginary is to make space uh, seem uh, feasible, um, desirable, uh, and inevitable. And it's probably uh, neither of the three uh, to any significant degree. So that's the point on imaginary. Um, and uh, on Oasis Earth, th this is a central point in the book. Uh, and one way to approach this is to ask ourselves the question, Okay, astronomy has been operating, you know, since the Copernican Revolution now uh, for several centuries, and there has been this uh, progressive uh, improvement uh, in our knowledge of the cosmos, uh, of the of of what is beyond the Earth, and uh, this has accelerated, of course, in the twentieth century, uh, and then since the so-called beginning of the space age, people actually doing things beyond the Earth. We've been sending all of these probes, and we've got all these telescopes. So there's been this fabulous cascade of new knowledge um, that is, again, widely uh, known to people. People are all over the world very fascinated by this. And uh, it's mesmerizing, you know, black holes and, you know, supernovas and these weirdly uh, alien uh, landscapes. Um, and so I asked the question, well, this is this is great, uh, but could you guys, you astronomers, sum up, you know, a, a short list, most important, 
uh, in terms of practical implications for humanity. And at the top of that list would, would certainly be uh, the idea of cosmocide, the idea that the Earth uh, is uh, going inevitably to be destroyed by the operation of cosmic forces. The sun, you know, output will change, uh, bombardment, you know, from comet and asteroidal uh, objects. The, the universe is an extraordinarily violent place, uh, and we know for sure that the Earth will come to an end. So that's sort of the big ticket item. Uh, but the time frame for that is likely to be at unimaginable distant from the present. The human species is, what, 200,000 years old? Uh, the, the sun is going to be fine in all likelihood for at least uh, a, another half billion years. So it's not like we need to rush, right? Uh, and so the second key uh, finding of what has actually uh, been brought back, this cornucopia of knowledge, is something that doesn't get uh, adequately emphasized. Uh, and this is the idea of Oasis Earth, uh, that initially people thought there was going to be life and intelligent life uh, on many other bodies in the solar system. And of course, that is very much not uh, the case. And the OASIS finding is this, that for trillions and trillions of miles in all directions, at a minimum, there is an in a, there is a, a extremely inhospitable, harsh uh, wilderness within which the Earth is this minuscule speck that is teeming with this fabulous array of life. That should be recognized as this primary finding of astronomy and uh, exploration uh, more generally. And its implication, uh, I think, is to start with that we would do everything we can to protect this place, that this is very special. Don't mess this up catastrophically. Yeah, I think as you were, you know, explaining that it, it, one of the things that really strikes me about this is the, you know, the way our our imagination of our immediate sort of area of space has changed. You know, since I was young, um, the moon used to seem far away, and and now it seems like it's right around the corner. A um, hundred years ago, people were talking about a civilization on Mars. Um, and of course, we now know that nothing like that exists. Um, but when you, you kind of think about astronomy, on the one hand, has dramatically expanded our horizons, of course, and it's led to a lot of thinking about extraterrestrial intelligence or just ast in astrobiology, just life in, in other places. And we you know, just recently had the news coming about, out about maybe there's life on Venus, or at least you know, that's a, a hypothesis. Um, and yet often forgotten in that, and, and I think maybe this actually in some ways comes back to this Star Trek imaginary, often forgotten in that is the distances are just astonishingly huge, really even just inside our own solar system, forgetting about anywhere else. And so that, that concept of the oasis, um, it is this little tiny speck of, of a whole lot of life and a lot of interesting stuff in a, in a very you know, vast space about which we know really very little. 
even in our own solar system. So I, that is a really wonderful point, a wonderful way to think about um, and maybe change the way we think about our sort of location here and, and, and how we're related to the just the other planets in our solar system. Um, so I, this kind of brings me to another point that um, you make in the prologue that um, the, the reconfiguration of Earth's geography and the emergence of various kind of planetary perils are a product of, you know, humanity's rapid development of abilities to understand and manipulate the natural world. And of course, this has happened, you know, very quickly over the last couple of hundred years. And you note that there's this never ending expansion is a sense of um, an assumed context in which uh, this has not only happened, but will continue to happen. And yet the, the space that we live on, on earth is finite, finite. And, um, and we've started to really recognize the limitations as that growth has continued. And so expansion into space, as I understand the argument, opens the door to a vast expansion that may well be beyond our capacity to control. And uh, this should raise a lot of you know thinking. It should be a serious concern, given the fact that we really have never looked too good at controlling the effects of expansionism on our very finite Earth. And so I was wondering, how is this idea important for understanding human movement into space? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. And um, my approach to this is to start with the recognition uh, that the dominant civilization on the planet uh, is scientific uh, technological modernity. Um, this is very recent. Uh, Francis Bacon uh, really laid it out uh, in the New Atlantis uh the Enlightenment uh, began to turn it into a practical program. Uh, and uh, with the 19th century and the coming of the industrial machine, uh, the, the transformation that had been promised uh, started to uh, materialize. And we are uh, on, a, on a river of technological uh, innovation. Uh, the idea uh, that uh, we will uh, innovate ourselves out of problems uh, is uh, something that is now uh, part of the, the, the grain of our civilization. Uh, the two most powerful forces on the planet, the state system and interstate military rivalry uh, and uh, market uh, capitalism uh, are both deeply committed uh, to uh, this worldview and to putting the immense amounts of resources uh, into frontier development of new science for new technologies. Uh, and uh, since the middle of the 20th century, at, at least, people have been starting to say, well, uh, what we're doing is we're creating uh, a bunch of uh, very uh, potent, increasingly potent uh, double-edged swords. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, uh, the sword can cut uh, through you know, the, 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 the impoverishment, the disease, uh, the ignorance uh, that has... Um, the immobility that has uh, hobbled uh, the human estate uh, since its origins. Um, but on the other hand, uh, these technologies uh, have enormous capacity uh, for violence. And of course, the quintessential uh, defining technology, uh, I think, of what I refer to as the planetary Earth period, beginning from the middle years of the 20th century, uh, are uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, which give us the capacity, give this species the capacity for the first time uh, to uh, obliterate civilization and potentially to render 
uh, the human species uh, extinct, a kind of anthropogenic uh, extinction possibility. Uh, and uh, when we think, think about the world as being radically transformed in this way, and all of these new capacities come along, the question that we invariably have to ask ourselves is, well, are we really capable of steering and governing these technologies in a way that will preclude their uh, catastrophic uh, and existential consequences? Uh, and if we're not capable of uh, engaging in that type of steering, then the, uh, the, the, the juggernaut of uh, scientific technological modernity uh, is is basically a, a a doomed trajectory. Yeah, it's when you describe that as as sort of innovating our way, you know, out of our problems. And and another way that I often think about it is that seems to have become you know very common in in the contemporary world is to engineer our way out of our problems. It seems that many of the the difficulties that we face are perceived as being engineering problems or engineering challenges rather than social or cultural challenges that have something to do with the way that we we interact with the world and the way that we think about our relationship to the environment. And I thought that was a, a theme that, that just kind of ran through the book is that that you know that this is expansionism is a is a social thing. It's not just an engineering thing. It's a social and cultural thing. And we carry with us, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, you know, this kind of consumption mindset. At the same time, we see exploration or expansion into space as being a way that, you know, through engineering the technologies of space travel, we can engineer solutions to our problems. Does that does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that that is the uh, prevalent uh, mindset, uh, engineering uh mentality. Um, and look, the best example of this is uh, right now uh, with the uh, coronavirus uh, plague. Um, everyone is waiting for the vaccine. Right? There's this enormous presumption that if we just wait a little longer, uh, that science is going to uh, come to the rescue. And of course, science is, in this case, very well may come to the rescue. Uh, and uh, we have, as a civilization, uh, at least in that dimension, uh, at least to a first approximation, uh, made the smart move of investing in uh, vaccine technology with the assumption that uh, we can push it uh, forward uh, and uh, solve this problem. So look, th th this problem-solving mentality is something that has immense credibility because it's been so successful. I mean, our ancestors lived uh, narrow, uh, uh, impoverished, uh, and short, uh, often violent lives. And uh, the commodiousness of the human estate has been immensely elevated. Uh, all of these wondrous things, we fly around from different points on the surface of the earth like birds. Uh, we speak to one another you know, across unimaginable distances through these uh, uh, telecommunications gizmos. And so given how successful it's been, it's logical to assume that we should keep doing it and that the spatial expansions that we saw on Earth across historical time should not stop, we'll just continue them. 
continue them off the planet into the inner solar system. There's lots of asteroidal bodies. You know, some of the planets uh, have some potential, uh, possibly, to be uh, inhabited. But it's very large, and there's an enormous amount of, of, of basic raw material. And so technology says, let, let, us, let us get at it. We will, we will do here like we have done on Earth. We will expand uh, the human habitat. Yeah, I think, um, and that 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 idea of expansion kind of leads me to the the next question I want to explore a little bit. Is you argue that you know large scale expansion of human activities into space shouldn't be viewed as as having the potential to save our species and planet, but actually as an existential threat to humanity. And this is a very you know provocative perspective as we've you know been talking about and. I, I'd be willing to guess that many of the people listening um, probably would not agree on that perspective, but you have a wonderful passage that I'd like to read for our listeners in which you compare the space expansionist agenda to religion. And you say, the human movement into space becomes a vital step toward the immortality of the human species and Earth-originated life, and eventually toward something approximating a species apotheosis in which the post-human descendants of humanity acquire godlike powers. But unlike pre-scientific religions, full space expansionism takes its writ from the book of nature, as revealed by experimental science rather than supernatural revelations. Unlike pre-scientific revealed religions that are challenged by evolutionary biology, the full narrative of space expansionism advances itself as the culmination of the evolution of life on Earth and the cosmos, is a really, really interesting statement, and 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 the way it almost presents this as a kind of religious quest, and and it reminded me of what I found in in some of the um, other areas of the space exploration community, particularly in the SETI community, who um, sometimes scientists in those areas seem to act almost as true believers with a kind of religious zeal in in what they're trying to pursue, and. I'm curious why you think that space expansionism has taken on this sort of teleological and perhaps even almost eschatological tone. Why is it moved in that direction? Uh, that's a terrific question. Um, let me respond uh, in two ways. Uh, first of all, focusing on um, the uh, existential risk uh, argument. Uh, and then on this uh, true believers uh, religious zeal uh, question. Um, with regard to um, catastrophic and existential risks, um, as we have learned uh, over the last several centuries, um, there's now a variety of different ways in which uh, humanity uh, might come to be extinguished. And uh, the space advocates view the idea that if we go into space, we can improve our species' survivability as something like the the sort of ultimate, you know, ace in the hole uh, claim uh, in their portfolio uh, of arguments. You know, it, they say things like, "Well, what's the difference between humanity and the dinosaurs?" Uh, well, the dinosaurs didn't have a space program. 
and that by becoming a multi-planet species, humanity will be able to increase its probability of cosmic survival. Is extremely widely held. Uh, it has a certain intuitive uh, logic to it. And in the longer term, it is absolutely indisputably true because the Earth will cease to be habitable. But my argument really focuses on negative effects that are going to occur if we have uh, a distributed humanity, as people say, of a multi-planetary species. And I basically argue that there will be tendencies in this expanded human space solar domain towards war and that the violence potential within this domain will be even greater uh, than it is on the earth with nuclear weapons. And that many of the reasons that people fight and use violence on the earth will be abundantly present in a world, in a situation where humanity is spread across multiple worlds uh, in the inner solar system. So a, a full treatment of the question of space and catastrophic and existential risks would involve uh, uh, making a list, a, a matrix of all the different possibilities, and then look at how different space scenarios could or could not uh, impact them. And the key point in my argument is that the reason that people have uh, politically been doing things that are self-destructive on the earth is, is, is associated with war, right? We, we, we've had policide, if you would, polities killing each other uh, throughout history. What is the cause of death of, of civilizations? Many, but the top of the list is going to be death by violence, murdered. And so as long as humans continue that type of uh, behavior in space, in combination with this multiplication of powers, the result is very likely to be catastrophic and existentially disastrous. Yeah, you, you raise that point several times throughout the book. You you really lay out some of these kinds of scenarios. And, and you know, the, the one that struck me um, as being very powerful was the fact that, well, if we develop the technology and, and the knowledge to be, be able to move asteroids around, well, we can use them as weapons. We can you know, basically direct them towards something that we want to destroy. And, and the force of an asteroid hitting, you know, a large asteroid hitting the planet is is just incredible. The amount of destruction would be um, really stunning. And you actually had a really interesting argument. You talked about um, kind of the, the power of of nuclear weapons on our planet and how that changes as the the expanse of space that we move into gets larger. Could, could you talk about some examples related to, you know, what, what these threats really are? Well, um, space is, is radically unlike uh, the uh, terrestrial environments in which humans have always lived. And, uh, of course, one feature that's different is that it's a, a near hard vacuum. Uh, 
uh, is washed by all of this uh, radiation. There's uh, extremes of temperature uh, variation. Um, but perhaps even more important uh, and d difficult to grasp uh, practically is uh, the extreme velocities with which objects in space uh, are moving relative to each other. And the extreme quantities of uh, energy and thus violence potential that is inherent in an environment where all of these objects uh, are moving so rapidly. The uh, you know, asteroid striking the Earth, we, everyone's aware this happened. We have all of these images of it. The reason that that's so destructive isn't because of the mass of the asteroid per se. It's because of the velocity with which these objects uh, are moving. A good benchmark is uh, orbital velocity. To stay in orbit around the Earth, an object must be traveling some 17,500 miles an hour. That's multiples of a, of, a, of a fast rifle bullet. And so when objects traveling that uh, velocity, or velocities even greater than that, strike, they release enormous amounts of energy. And so this is just to say that the space environment is intrinsically violent in ways that are radically unlike what we're familiar with, and that present enormous array of potentials for weaponization, one of which you mentioned, the so-called planetoid bomb, inherent in, in developing space on a large scale is going to be the development of technologies to move mass around uh, the solar system. And once that technology is developed, the difference between inserting an asteroidal mass into an orbit so that we can build some space city and aiming that asteroid so that it obliterates much of a continent, it's just a difference of trajectory. So it's, a, it's another one of these double-edged swords. Uh, if the, the advocates are right, we can uh, manipulate all this asteroidal and lunar mass and you know, create you know, habitats within which uh, large numbers of humans might live. But that technology is also inherently an extremely potent violence capacity. So the, the people that are you know, in favor of expansion, you know, they're, they're, they're very smart people, lots of really interesting ideas. Um, so, you know, sometimes I, I refer, refer to them sometimes as sort of true believers in space, space expansionism. Um, and actually, as I thought about that, when I, when I was looking at my notes here, uh, was I was watching the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery last night, and they talk about, um, the uh, far future remnants of Starfleet as being the true believers, which is just kind of an interesting thought, I guess, an aside. Um, but you know, if if people can uh, people can see this, right? The, as you noted, the the idea of of an asteroid being used as a projectile to wipe out a continent, everyone who thinks about this goes, "Yeah, I can see how that can happen." So, how is it that space expansionism has taken on this kind of teleological? Um, sort of tone and and taken on a a you know kind of salvation mindset about this this you know we 
they're the dangers are obvious. They're not they're not really hidden. So why do we have that mindset? Yeah, uh, that's a puzzle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because it really isn't, uh, uh, if you would, rocket science uh, to figure out uh, some of these um, violent scenarios. Well, it, it starts back to this point that you were uh, raising earlier uh, about uh, the semi-religious uh, character of this. Um, and, you know, we look at people's behavior on Earth with regard to uh, things they believe with regard to religion. Uh, and uh, there's a wide band of, uh, of behaviors that seem to be um, justified, uh, motivated uh, by uh, sentiments that are characterized as religious. Um, and so you look at the character of this part of space expansionism. You, know, you read that uh, quote uh, from uh, the book. Um, and, and essentially what's happened here. This started to happen in the middle of the 19th century, uh, associated with a group uh, most developed in Russia uh, of cosmism. Uh, and it's a sort of uh, Darwinian naturalization with technology of the essential religious narrative that previously had been non-secular and non-natural, basically naturalized uh, the core uh, narrative of uh, salvationist uh, religion. And so once people began to realize that the plasticity of organic life uh, over time was enormous and uh, reasonably hypothesized that uh, manipulation of the trajectory of uh, evolution uh, would become technologically possible, you know, they didn't. They didn't know specifically about genes and DNA and all of this, but they made the, the not unreasonable leap that this had happened in nature, and we're figuring out everything about nature, and so we're going to be able to figure out how to uh, transmute humanity. And so this this is many different labels for this. One of them is transhumanism, uh, has been a major uh, part of. Uh, the, the larger space expansionist uh, narrative all along, uh, because the presumption is that people, um, A, are going to be getting this technology, but B, most importantly, perhaps, the space environment is inhospitable for humanity, and therefore for uh, humans and their descendants to thrive in space, they're going to have to evolve, uh, and that aided by technology, they're going to potentially evolve into uh, a variety of forms uh, uh, that will be descendants of humanity, but might look uh, very different from humanity. And this is to say that we're going to be getting uh, speciation, uh, um, species radiation, as the biologists say. And I ask the question, well, uh, if this is very likely, nearly inevitable, is this something that we would we would knowingly take steps to realize? And I say it's doubtful because we're basically creating the possibility of, well, look, in this solar system, there will be potentially multiple intelligence uh, species, all descended from us, with at least our technological level. And, you know, what could go wrong? You look at the ways in which people have 
behaved with towards one another on the earth because of these trivial cosmetic differences that get ginned up into race. And imagine an insectoid descendant civilization and the idea of peaceful coexistence, arms control, cooperation, becomes vanishingly improbable. And so I say we have technological capabilities that are going to take us on paths that if we look step by step and think through, we're not going to want to be where we end up. And part of the maturation of our species, and this is a theme that Carl Sagan uh, uh, developed quite nicely, the maturation of our species is the capacity to make judgments and implement various forms of restraint with regard to the, the range of technologies that are going to be open to us. Yeah, I think um, that's that, that issue about the, the evolution, the, the future of, of human evolution is, is one of the really intriguing um, sort of themes that you develop throughout the book. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think you make the point somewhere, you know, that, that this is not um, a, a novel occurrence. Um, this is what happened to the Neanderthals when modern humans emerged and were quicker and technologically better. The Neanderthals were an intelligent species and they, they had technologies and, and language and all sorts of, you know, things that we would attach to intelligence. And yet they were overpowered or overrun by um, our ancestors who emerged. And there's no reason to think that that process is, you know, sometimes I think humans forget that we're we live in an evolutionary flow. Change is constantly going on, um, and if you project out into the future, well, sure. If we expand into uh, the rest of our solar system, those are different environments, and and different species are going to emerge eventually. And I think, as you you know point out really well throughout the book, there is no reason to think that there won't be conflict. And the conflict, of course, at the level of the kind of powers that are involved becomes threatening um, really for, you know, any, any species, any life that's in the solar system and certainly for our form, um, both potentially being viewed as, as a problem maybe to eradicate or um, as simply not being able to keep up with what emerges. I, I really thought that was a, a fascinating um, sort of thread that ran through the book. It was a really important part of the overall conversation. It doesn't get raised very often when talking about expansion into space that, you know, how is this going to change us and not just like change our outlook on things, but literally change us as a species. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, let me turn a little bit now, um, kind of you know, as you work through the book, um, you you argue, I think, very convincingly that um, humans will take their consumptionist economic philosophy and their tendency towards political conflict into space. So we've been talking about, uh, and you make a really strong case for the idea that 
many of the social and political benefits claimed for space expansionism are really a little more than wishful thinking on the part of those in favor of expansion. There isn't really a whole lot of evidence to support the idea that these things will come to fruition. But as I I read the book, I I found myself thinking, wow, this guy's got a a rather dark concept of human nature and seems to assume that humans are unlikely to change as they enter the cosmos. And, And so I'm just going to throw this at you. Won't we change as we move into the cosmos? Won't we get over this? Won't we um, mature from our adolescence as a species, as I think often is described in the Star Trek imaginary, and, and become full-fledged adults? Well, many of the people uh, who write about space uh, seem to uh, hold this view, uh, sometimes implicitly, uh, but often explicitly. Uh, and I think this word uh, ascensionism uh, helps get at uh, the kind of primitive mentality uh, at work here, which is uh, ascensionism is the idea uh, that humans are kind of hardwired uh, to uh, think that that which is spatially uh, elevated uh, is uh, not only more powerful, uh, but also uh, ethically uh, superior. Uh, there's a sense in which the geographic um, axiology, the geographic uh, axis of, uh, of value uh, in religions uh, is all very uh, ascensionist. Uh, heaven is above and hell is below. Uh, and, and this is pervasive in our language. Look, at, take the word superior, for example. It simultaneously means um, spatially above, but also you know, better more generally. And we talk about uh, states that are getting uh, more powerful uh, as rising uh, in uh, power. Um, So this sort of ascensionist um, psychology, if you would, that's kind of hardwired in humans uh, is uh, part of the basis for why we have uh, this enormous uh, optimism uh, about these outcomes. Do I have a uh, dark uh, view of human nature? Well, of course, my answer would be that I have a realistic one uh, and that it's mixed, uh, that humans are capable of you know, uh, astounding acts of depravity and uh, angelic uh, acts of heroic, uh, artistic and ethical uh, um, action. Um, will we change? If we don't change, then then it will be very problematic. That's really my argument. I don't think that it's likely that we will change, but I don't want to exclude that as a logical possibility. But simply to say that you've got to make the bet that humans are going to get better as they go up, which seems to me very dubious, or the assumption that genetic uh, engineering technology will over time enable the uh, production of uh, superior uh, humans, not just with regard to their uh, mental capacities of memory or or what have you, uh, or their lifespan, uh, but also uh, their uh, ethical uh, possibilities, their capabilities for self-restraint and for uh, various types of cooperative activities. I think that that's potentially possible, but the doing of that is itself going to be extremely problematic, ridden with conflict, 
And that, as I say in the conclusion, the decision about whether we should go into space on a, in a large scale should now be largely negative. But several centuries from now, after humanity has hopefully successfully uh, ridden through these revolutions with regard to the habitability of the earth, the control of large-scale violence, the application of information technology, artificial intelligence, artificial superintelligence, genetic engineering, we're going to have to confront choices with regard to these technologies whether or not we go into space. But making the right decisions for these technologies will be vastly harder if we go into space. Yeah, that's a I think a a really wonderful insight in the in the conclusion as as you really, you know, bring forth this this issue related to expansion into space and um you argue I think very convincingly that that this push um is really kind of a product of a sort of adolescent in, impatience um in which are impulses for experiencing really cool things. You know, space is romantic. It's cool. It's exciting. Black holes are cool. You know, Venus is cool. Um, but that that desire, that impatience has outrun our capacity to make prudent calculations of risk. And, and we're not making those calculations. And as I, I read the conclusion, I, I got the uh, kind of an image of space expansionist as being a 17-year-old teenage male driving a 1968 GTO at 140 miles an hour, paying little attention to the risks he takes for himself, nor to the risks he potentially represents for others. And you actually use an interesting term in the way you present a solution for the problem is that we should relinquish. Um, Almost all of the activities that we're doing in space beyond scientific research that's aimed at earth system science, beyond astronomy, and also beyond political processes of treaty making that would help to protect the earth from catastrophic disaster. And and this, of course, is, I think, a very powerful theme in the book that we should really be focusing on figuring out how to protect the planet that we live on. And and so um, I, I, you know, I as I guess the, you know, pragmatist, I kept thinking as I read this, yep, I agree. I think this makes a whole lot of sense, but, but can we actually do this? Is this likely or even possible um, with things like, you know, telecommunications are so central in our lives. Um, we, we do have a, you know, on our current path, we're going to have a growing need for resources that will be available through asteroid mining. And, and so, can we actually relinquish even a small segment of that expansionist agenda? And, you know, the 17-year-old male is is going to drive his muscle car fast, even if he knows at an intellectual level that it might kill him. And, you know, if, if we're that 17-year-old male, are, are, are we going to be able to do this? Uh, it's an open question. Uh, I, I don't think it's inevitable uh, one way or another. Uh, humans uh, have uh, shown themselves to be uh, you know, overall, on the average, uh, quite practically prudent uh, with regard to a whole range of risks, obviously imperfectly so. Uh, but, you know, the only reason that we're alive is because we learn not to walk out in front of uh, <laughs> speeding automobiles or we learn not to, you know, ignite uh 
fires all around us. Uh, we, we learn not to walk off you know, high uh, precipices or uh, roofs of, uh, of buildings. Um, and if we don't learn uh, those things early on, well, we get kind of selected out, right? Uh, and so there's an enormous amount of kind of, you know, practical uh, survival uh, intelligence uh, that uh, our existence is, is, is evidence for. Uh, but speaking uh, specifically to this topic of relinquishment and, you know, what we should do and not do uh, now with regard to space, uh, I should mention uh, the topic of ballistic missiles, which we haven't uh, voiced much on to, uh, to today. Um, one of the key arguments of uh, my book, Dark Skies, is that uh, ballistic missiles uh, are inherently uh, space weapons and that the uh, ballistic missileization, if you would, of uh, nuclear weapons delivery uh, is intrinsically uh, a space activity, and that uh, the net effect of this has been uh, to increase the probability of nuclear war, and that it is a remarkable act of uh, avoidance that the space advocates managed to duck this reality, managed to completely ignore this fact. Look, ballistic missiles uh, were the reason that people developed heavy rockets. Everyone agrees on this. And ballistic missiles have to, I think, be seen as intrinsically space weapons because what they distinctively do as weapons which is to go very fast, depends upon a feature of space that is unique to space, namely the absence of uh, an atmosphere. So ballistic missiles are space weapons. And once we acknowledge that fact, and we ask ourselves the legacy, the, the ledger sheet question, people say, oh, space, you know, we've been doing all these different things. The big problem is we haven't done enough. And remarkably, no one actually does an inventory about the actual consequences of the full array of activities in space that would necessarily include ballistic missiles. And so I look at what's actually happened so far, and I say, well, there have been a lot of positive features, telecommunication satellites, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges and light bulbs and hand grenades, that it's difficult to sort of put them all on the same uh, ledger sheet. But we would reasonably, I think, acknowledge that the ballistic missileization of nuclear weapons is one of our largest and most consequential space programs, that space enthusiasts, that space thinkers don't even recognize as a space program. So there is a deep uh, tendency to uh, avoid bad news, uh, to avoid uh, negatives. That uh, is the first thing we would want to uh, overcome. Okay, space might be able to do more positive things we should potentially do. But the first step would be to undo this immensely negative thing that we have done. And so we should get rid of ballistic missiles to a first approximation. We need uh, substantial arms control. And look, when people talk about nuclear arms control, 
we have never regulated nuclear weapons per se. What we have done is we have regulated delivery vehicles, the most important by far of which have been ballistic missiles. And so what we call nuclear arms control has been to a first approximation ballistic missile space weapons arms control. And to the extent that that has lowered the probability of nuclear war, that would have to be seen as our most successful and consequential space program in a positive uh, direction. So we need, to, we, we, need to, we need to be thinking about Mars and whether we want to do this, the whole larger set of issues. But we don't have to look out decades into the future for decisions about space that have catastrophic and existential implications. We've been doing that for 60 years. And we need to continue doing that right as a first step. So I, I challenge the space community to uh, put its uh, actions uh, where its ideology is, where its claims are, and actually make space assuredly so far a positive net. And the way to do that is to control ballistic missiles and other space weapons. This is something that uh, Carl Sagan and Arthur C. Clarke kind of uniquely among leading space people got, right? uh, but it's not the dominant view among the space uh, world, among the space cadets, among the space believers. Yeah, they, they, that is definitely not the way it's perceived. The, the ballistic missile programs are viewed as, as part of the, you know, here, the Air Force, um, which, you know, raises also an interesting question. I, I'm just curious, do you think the, the emergence of this new space force might contribute to moving the idea of ballistic missiles into being thought of as part of a space program? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I understand there have been conversations about that. Um, but I think that the creation of a space force um, is kind of a quintessentially uh, bad idea. Um, that the last thing we need at this point, given all of the other needs we have on this planet, given the dangers uh, involved in uh, further weaponization, the last thing we need is to uh, create a, you know, a bureaucracy with the writ uh, to dominate space. I mean, people, I, I don't think, appreciate the degree to which uh, the Trump administration uh, in this area, as in so many others, uh, has uh, crossed uh, historical lines uh, with regard to uh, U.S. Uh, space policy. Uh, the administration, the Trump administration, has declared uh, that it is the goal of the United States to dominate space. And of course, if we are able to dominate space, that means that every other uh, country, great power on the planet, will be vulnerable to uh, our uh, dominance. And they also uh, have committed, at least at a declaratory level, to building a, uh, a large uh, space-based uh, ballistic missile uh, interception system. Now, they haven't spent much money on it. It's going to be fabulously expensive, uh, very problematic to do it uh, for a variety of reasons. But the Trump administration has basically crossed over a line 
and has committed the United States, at least at a declarative level, to dominate the planet. Now, you know, you don't have to be uh, a kind of advanced student of international relations to see that other countries are going to react to that kind of the same way we would if they did something like that, which is to deploy parallel systems to similarly uh, attempt to contest. And so do we want to have an arms race to dominate uh, near-Earth space? Is that really in, in the American national interest? Look, and this is part and parcel of a more general uh, attack uh, by uh, the Trump administration uh, on the architectures of mutual restraint with regard to nuclear weapons that were slowly, with a great you know, political difficulty, woven together over the long decades of the Cold War and after. They're like throwing them out like used beer cans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, the, the, the number of things that that administration has, has attacked that have been designed to try to mitigate conflict, like, like their, you know, their attacks on NATO and a variety of other things have, you know, really lead to a potentially, you know, much more um, problematic environment from a, a, you know, political and conflict perspective. And, you know, what you describe is, you know, with the emergence of the Space Force is basically pretty much what is, you know, the, the, the germination, the beginning point of what you describe in the book is, is this kind of creating a framework for conflict um, that gets moved into space rather than trying to limit that. And I, I read the other day, I think now Japan is pursuing its own idea of a space force. And so, of course, other countries, you know, well, if they've got one, we have to have one. And, and you know, Japan's a close ally. And so um, it, it does seem like it's something that will simply expand that that sort of frame of, of conflict into, um, you know, lower orbit and obviously beyond. Well, the um, other factor that's often ignored uh, in this discussion of um, space weaponry, uh, orbital of uh, exchanges of weapons is the space debris issue. And I mm-hmm. guess many people are aware, uh, building on the point about high velocities earlier, uh, that small uh, objects moving at high velocities, pieces of debris from old satellites and uh, rocket fairings and so forth, uh, create uh, a hazard in this environment. Uh, and this is something that we ought to you know, pause and sort of think about because Look, this is everyone says, oh, this is a frontier. The Earth is, you know, uh, finite and, and, and we need to go into these new areas. Uh, they're going to enlarge. But we've hardly started uh, 50 years of it, you know, maybe 5,000 satellites or something like that total. And already this environment has gotten significantly degraded. Yeah. And so there's a kind of basic ignorance about the geography of this domain that underlies these uh, larger uh, visions of weaponization. And the reality is, is that building anything of magnitude, uh, a solar collector system, um, asteroidal resource manufacturing, to say nothing of a space colony, uh, o- 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 O'Neill type, you know, canisters around the Earth, 
uh, anything of this sort, a whole list of ideas of, of, of doing things of magnitude in the Earth's uh, orbital space, any of these projects is going to presuppose that we have controlled the debris problem. Because the creation of debris as a method to counter any large uh, program is always going to be uh, easily accessible to uh, actors as long as they have the ability to get things into orbital space. Yeah, it's uh, obviously, you know, I think one of the things that, that I, I take away from this book is the the incredible need that we have to do an awful lot more deep thinking about this before we sort of just blithely move into the solar system. And whenever whenever I read, I, I often write the letters GP in the margins um, when, when I think there's a particularly good point being made. And, and there are a whole lot of GPs in this book. We can't even really begin to touch on the, the depth. This is an exceptionally well-researched and, and well-presented book with a lot of detail. And um, you know, one of the things, so, you know, I've really only been able, we've been able to scratch the surface of what is a, a really fantastic argument. I, I'd like to wrap up our, our discussion of dark skies by asking what, what you would most like listeners and future readers to take away from the book. Well, I guess there'd be uh, sort of uh, three uh, points on the, the super short list. Uh, one was the uh, earlier uh, discussed idea of uh, Oasis Earth. Uh, there is no planet B uh, that we need uh, to uh, attend uh, to uh, sustaining the habitability of this planet. That's the single most important uh, lesson that we should be drawing uh, from this fabulous expansion of our knowledge of the cosmos uh, that has occurred across recent decades and centuries. Uh, the second observation, uh, which we just spoke of, is this point about ballistic missiles, is the deep implication, uh, the, the, the way in which the space uh, enterprise has been deeply implicated uh, in uh, this, I think, frankly, insane uh, project of preparing to uh, wage uh, nuclear war at a moment's notice. Um, that uh, the ballistic missile, you know, is is elemental in this, uh, and that the the that space actually has had more consequence than even the advocates would acknowledge, but it just hasn't been positive. And the third observation, the third sort of takeaway, would be that the larger project of space settlement, space colonization of making humanity a uh, multi-species uh, entity uh, is uh, far more problematic in its likely consequences uh, than has been uh, recognized, and that there are uh, a variety of good reasons to believe that that uh, project uh, should be uh, relinquished, that we should uh, simply say no to the project of colonization and settlement of the solar system uh, for the foreseeable multi-century uh, future, and that we do so in order to improve the prospects for human survival. The, uh, had, the, had the dinosaurs had a space program, would they have lasted how many hundreds of millions of years that they lasted? 
not if their space program is or would have been like our space program. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a very interesting image to kind of uh, bring our, our interview to a, a close on is sort of dinosaurs in space and how would have that have gone? But but it, I think it really is. It's, it's an important way to think about, you know, what are the things that lead to longevity for a species and not being able to anticipate risks are, are that that's got to be right at the front of things that aren't going to lead to longevity. And, and I think this is one of the really powerful things that runs throughout this book is the, the reality of the risks that we aren't really paying very close attention to when it comes to expansion into space. And we really need to think about that. And so, um, this is a, I think it's a fantastic book. And, and so I want to ask you now, what's up next? Uh, could you talk a little bit about your current research and or any plans for writing in the future? Uh, well, I'm uh, trying to continuously uh, write. Um, and um, you mentioned earlier uh, this book um, that I did 2007, uh, Bounding Power, uh, Republican Security Theory from the Polis to the Global Village. Um, this book is a rereading of uh, Western thought about uh, security um, from violence, uh, political order, uh, and uh, material context in the sense of geography and technology. And um, essentially what I'm doing now is, is, is that argument forward uh, directed uh, tentatively uh, a book called uh, Home Rules. Uh, planetary geopolitics and uh, terrapolitan uh, republicanism. And I'm uh, thinking uh, systematically about um, architectures of uh, mutual restraints um, to replace uh, interstate anarchy uh, in order to improve uh, the survivability of the species and also to preserve the possibility of uh, political liberties and freedoms of the sorts that uh, Americans um, uh, take for granted, or at least some do, um, that historically uh, freedom has been rare uh, since the agricultural revolution. And most societies have been in a, a domination hierarchies of one sort or another, and that, uh, that many of the new technologies that we uh, are uh, producing and blithely um, viewing as, as, as solely positive, uh, may well be uh, creating uh, the possibilities uh, for new forms of uh, domination uh, and coercion, uh, and that unless uh, free peoples uh, stand up and at least innovate conceptually as a necessary first step, uh, and then uh, begin to uh, implement uh, programs uh, that the prospect for uh, not only our survival, but uh, also uh, our liberties um, are um, not as great as they might be. Yeah, I can see how that very much links into um, the, the you know, arguments that are running through dark skies. And it sounds like it's going to be a really interesting book. And I'm, I hope that we're going to be having another conversation about that one and not, not too different, di- distant future. Um, because I think it's, it sounds like a really interesting idea. 
Well, I think uh, you know we've had a I think a really good conversation, um, Dr. Dudney. I want to thank you again for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel of the New Books Network. Um, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. I've I've, I've learned a lot more and um, really uh, think this is a tremendously provocative and important take on the influence of space exploration for the future of humanity and uh, really encourage people to read it. I I think it will change a lot of perspectives. I I think as more people look at this and think about it seriously, I I hope that it opens some eyes about the the sort of naivete with which that we have um, approached this question of expansion into space and get us to think more critically and deeply about it. So um, thank you very much. And um, I look forward to uh, having the opportunity to talk with you again about the next book. Well, thank you for having me.